me get this started, I think. If we're going to understand the unclear, we've got to make sure we understand the clear first. Some passages are just tough. Some passages, you know, some things remain just difficult for us to understand. We could perhaps do a class on Bible difficulties sometime, but... Um, but there's enough misuse of the scriptures that we do understand or should understand that we need to attend to those first, which is what we've been doing. Um, been a pretty big week for quoting scripture in politics. Um, I just don't know that politics is the best place at all to be quoting scripture. I really don't. I think most people ought to just ignore scripture altogether in politics, unless there's a specific context where it's being asked for. But to just throw scripture verses out, even if you're a Christian is a little bit silly because, first of all, most people or many people don't consider Scripture to be the final authority on anything. So why quote Scripture? And the reason why people quote Scripture in politics is it's just like everything else, quite often a way of poking a jab at somebody. That's usually why liberals and conservatives both do it. It's just a poke in the eye of your, of your, of your, uh, of your opponent, of your interlocutor, is to just sort of poke him in the eye with Scripture a little bit and... Uh, you know, probably for, for many evangelicals, when liberals do it, it's more annoying. Um, not that it should be. But this week was um, a good example of this. For whatever reason, the Attorney, Attorney General Jeff Sessions at one point in the recent week or two had said something to the effect that with respect to the immigration, you know, the big thing in the news is the whole immigration thing continues to be a big thing in the news. And the question is, is it right to be taking parents away from children? And this is what's happening to some extent across the border, right? Is if you're if you're caught doing something, uh, if you're caught coming across the border, uh, you're you're responsible, and you're going to be held accountable for that. Of course, that means taking the parent away from the child at least for a time. I don't want to discuss the necessarily whether I don't want to discuss immigration policy. Uh, we could, but this isn't the time for it. So Jeff Sessions says that you know I could refer you to Romans 13. He says where the Apostle Paul says you ought to obey the government. Well, the government makes laws for a reason. And, uh, and then, so somebody else picked up on that, and uh, one of the, uh, Jim Acosta from CNN asked Sarah Sanders that in a press conference. And she said, I don't know what Jeff Sessions said, but she said, the Bible certainly has plenty to say about following laws. And then, uh, and so, so there was a sense, and I guess they're trying to say, you know, I, but, but again, why even bring up Scripture in that case? Uh, and then uh, Joe Scarborough of MSNBC had to go, had to add to the misery by saying, you know, didn't Jesus wasn't Jesus Christ of Nazareth the one that said, "Let the children come to me"? So you want to talk about an abuse? Talk about an abuse of scripture. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but well, exactly. Uh, and that's why I asked the question that I opened with is, you know, is how do we interpret scripture? Is that scripture interprets scripture, and it's just plain old silly to bring verses up out of nowhere like that, especially for politicians. Um, and, and I don't think that... I, again, if the question comes up and there's a right place for it, then that's fine. Um, you know, we know that... Uh, well, okay, so, so let, me, let, me, let, me, let, me be, uh, let me be my own opponent's advocate and say, well, doesn't, doesn't John the Baptist, doesn't he chide Herod saying it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife? You know, that was a political thing. What's the difference there? Mark, since you had your hand up, we'll let uh, you add, answer it. I was off on a different thought. Okay, what was your thought? We can get to that. Well, I was just thinking, you know, when the, the opportunity for quoting scripture and uh, 
introducing it into the conversation comes up. The, 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 the question really comes up my mind: Where do I start? You know, how, how far do I, how back how far back do I have to go? Yes. To set to kind of set the stage for yes. this to be irrelevant. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's it's. it's Herod had Jewish blood in him too, didn't he? Yeah, well, you're still dealing with a theocracy in in certain ways there. Yeah, Herod definitely had some Jewish blood in him. So, I mean, there's a significant difference there. Um, So, you know, I don't know why Jeff Sessions had to bring that up. I don't know if there was some question. I don't know if he was addressing Christians. I don't know why he had to bring that up that, you know, Romans 13 says to obey the laws. You know, government is there for, uh, it's basically there for your good. I don't know why he had to even bring that up. Uh, and that because as soon as you do that even if you know scripture you're opening the door for people who don't and you're giving people the opportunity to sort of why should we put why should we put um, why should we put the word of God out there for people to just abuse when we know they're going to abuse it right why, why, why would we do that I'm sorry well, it's okay. You can. Ex- I you think, can. I think we should put the, the word of God out there as often as possible, yeah. not poll where it may. Yeah, yeah, I don't agree. I think it's a huge mistake. I think there's a certain. I think Jesus would agree with me. <laughs> wow! Wow! Jesus, what do you have to say about this? Don't give holy things to dogs. Okay, thanks. Don't cast your pearl before swine. Oh, okay, thanks. <laughs> That's another misquoted verse too, by the way. We could talk about how that verse is misused. Um, we never should just... Because the Bible isn't a magic. And it isn't just something we should just throw at whatever. If there's an opportunity, I think we can always say, this is what sort of Christian theology embraces. And this is why... Uh, as a, I think even a politician could say, look... There are certain things that inform what I do here. One of them is my Christian faith, and the reason why one of the reasons why I do this, this, and this is this, this, and this. But I don't think that anywhere and any time is the right time to throw out the scripture. I just think some places it has no place at all for them. Yeah. Because what good does it do? What good could it possibly do? Yes. Uh, in Proverbs, it says a word spoken in due season. In due season, yeah. How good is it? Yeah, yeah. That's good good wisdom. Is the season <laughs> yeah. I think we should always be prepared with the Word of God, Wally. Don't get me wrong. We should always be ready with that. If there might be a chance to bring it in. So I agree with you. We should always be ready. Is there a place for God's opinion on this? But uh, during Christmas time, yeah. uh, at a council meeting mm-hmm. that was televised, uh-huh. I actually read uh, the account of Jesus' birth of Luke. Uh-huh. And I felt that it was appropriate then. Uh, I got a lot of looks from the counselors, but I felt that it was mm. appropriate. Right. And a lot of people liked hearing it. Mm-hmm. It was a good reminder to them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's six or one and a half a dozen. Of yeah. I mean, we, I, you know, I don't want to get off too much on debating the merits of, of using it or not using it, but certainly the way it's often used is wrong. I wanted to give you another example of the way Scripture is so sillily misused. Sillily. That's a wow. word. That's a good one. Uh, so I was at a uh, last September. I uh, was running for the Pro Life Center in Worcester. Uh, our life, uh, not your life matters, but the Clearway. And it was September, and yet it was 92 degrees at runtime. I mean, that is brutal weather to run in. Okay, um, and so we were we're lining up to get started, and there was this one young woman there, and I could tell she was Pentecostal, and I could tell it was one of the Pentecostal stripes that has a very low view of Scripture or a very high view of what they think the Holy Spirit should or shouldn't be doing. And she said, well, 
you know, she was worried about it. It's hot and all that. And she says, but the scripture says those who uh, trust in the Lord, the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. And that was her promise she held on to while she was running the race. And I thought to myself, what a blatant fool. You know, what a poor, ignorant, uninformed, what a danger, what a horrible witness this woman could be given the opportunity. She might also be very sweet in other ways. But I just thought, wow, what a... And, you know, I, that's not the best setting for me because I, I, to, my, to my own fault, I have a real low threshold for that sort of magnified stupidity. You know what I mean? Yes. Another good example of that, maybe you're going to mention this, but uh, Philippians 4.13, hmm? um, a Vanda Holyfield of... Uh, oh, jeez. I am going to actually get to that first. against Mike Tyson. Yes. Uh, and he comes up with, you know, their robe when they come yeah, out of yeah. the locker room and they have the, yeah. the dance and yeah. they go forward to the ring. Yeah. And he had a big uh, scripture on the back of his uh, uh, gown or whatever you want to call it, robe. And it said, I can do all things through Christ. Yeah, yeah. yeah we're actually going to cover that one today. So I'm glad that came up. But let's start with this one. There's not a whole lot to be said about this. But this is, uh, in the King James Bible, it says, money is the root of all evil. Okay, that's what it says in the King James, and that's just not a good translation. It never was. Some surprise common sense didn't drive that a little bit further than yes. It says money is the root of all evil. That's the love. I'm sorry. The love of money is the root of all evil. No, well, no. Let's 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 see exactly what it's saying in the King James. So we got the King James in it. I can look it up. I do. Would you do a little Bible Gateway action on that? Thanks. Look up everything. Ready for first scripture? It's check. First Timothy six. Yeah, first Timothy six ten. Yeah. First John, first John, first Peter. <laughs> first James. No, um, first James. I like that. First James. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for the love of money yes. is the root of all evil. That's right. So thanks. The, the love of money is the root of all evil. Interesting. The love of money is the root of all evil. Um. Of course, nowhere does the Bible teach it's wrong to possess money, right? And that it's wrong to have large quantities of money, for that matter. There's nothing wrong with being rich whatsoever. There's nothing immoral about it. There's nothing unbiblical about it. Um, there's nothing at all. And there's plenty of very wealthy people in the Bible. We need very wealthy people sometimes to help fund the work of God, you know? And among other things. Um, You know the act. It's, it's <clears throat> the King James again reads, if "The love of money is the root of all evil," and, and the King James, as the author says here, seems to suggest that any and all evil, irrespective of what it is, has its origin or root in quote the love of money. And I can remember one time uh, when I was in a fundy church, um, Fundamental Independent Baptist. I also call them Fibs. I like that actually better. Um, the the pastor made the point of on this verse saying, does that mean that rape is the result of the love of money? He says, yeah, I don't know how, but that's what the scripture says. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. For somehow then, the love of money is, is what's behind uh, the sin of rape. Um, and that's just a quantum leap in logic too. I don't know why we think we have to abandon logic. As if scripture doesn't use logic, it uses something else. If scripture doesn't use logic, I'll have nothing to do with it. It's just a waste of paper. You know what I mean? The scripture is full of logic from beginning to end. And logic, we use the tools of logic to determine what it says. Okay? Now, 
whether or not we place faith in what it says is a different question. But without logic, the Bible is just a uh, just a doorstop. You know what I mean? God is a God of logic. He's a God of reasoning. He's a God of 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 such. You know, I mean, he he chose language as the tool of communication. He he created language. You know, and if you think of everything that goes into language, so. <coughs> And we could probably talk about, you know, and, and so we could probably talk about the things that does, you know, I, I think love of money is just another form of love of anything but God. It's, love of self is probably behind <coughs> everything that's not, you know, love of self will also lead to love of money, you know. Love of anything. Yeah, yeah, exactly, you know. Uh, yeah, Tony. Look, Tony's sitting on the other side over there. Threw me off. Wasn't sure what your name was at first. I kind of think in a way that the translation for this love of money is more probably equal to personal gain or self-gain. Yeah. Strive to, I don't know, your pride. Your, your pride, your greed, sure. Your, yeah. I think it has to do with bettering yourself as yeah. far as not in align with God. And, and money can be a way of, of uh, if you have a lot of money, you can use that to get a lot of things that are against God's will. Yes? I think that uh, I think Tony's pretty close to on, on target there. Mm. I think that, uh, however, the love of money is, when we love money, we're thinking of ourselves mm-hmm. as a form of idolatry. And anything that comes between <coughs> us and God mm. is, a, is idolatry. Sure. So I would agree with money... But there's other things too that we look for, forward to, hmm. to satisfy ourselves, to give us peace and give us comfort and give us satisfaction. Yep. We think that as we look to strive for things, that's going to give us comfort and peace. Yep. And that's, that's when we're putting ourselves ahead of God. Yep. But the verse, you know, the, literally the verse, or, or better translations are the love of money is a root. Of all kinds of evil, it is. We can look at, we can look at a lot of the reasons. So money is not, not only a tool, but also money is both for, for many people is both a means and an end, right? It's both a means and an end. So if money is the is a root of all kinds of evil, as there are other things, yeah, the the love of money uh, could, could drive us to do many things. Could drive us to be unkind, uh, step on other people, to neglect what's really needful. Uh, so. Yeah, so I just think there's a big difference there between money is uh, the love of money is the root of all evil, and money is a root uh, of all kinds of evil. Love of money is a root of all, all kinds of evil. Okay. Is oh. the other word avarice is used? I don't know. I mean, avarice and greed are pretty much the same kind of thing. Yeah, that would be a paraphrase of some kind. I would bet because quite literally the word is money. The love of well, I mean, avarice could be a single word to describe the love of money mm-hmm. you know uh, avarice and greed you know being synonymous one to the other so I suppose that's possible but my but money is literally in the in, in the, the original languages okay oh here comes a great one God will not give you more than you can handle <clears throat> I have heard that so many times from Christian people it's borderline blasphemy to me. If, if God won't give me more than I can handle, I guess I don't need God. Right? Mm. What do I need God for? If He's only going to give me what I can handle. Right? Mm. I mean, God will never give you more than you can handle. Um, and 
and really what that represents, that attitude is deism in a way too. I mean, deism says that God created everything and just sort of let it go to see where it would end up. To, to say that God would never give us more than we can handle is very deistic in that way. He just gives it to us. So he's the one that gives us problems. He's, he's sovereign over what problems come and all that stuff, but he'll never give us more than we can handle, so he only gives us that. Yes? Is there, is there a scripture reference for that? You know, no, that's just misuse of scripture. Okay. And the scripture is God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. It's 1 Corinthians 10.13. And that's where most people draw that inference from. Their inference is from that reference. Unfortunately, it's, it's far off. But this is the same Paul that said this. And some people take that too. God is faithful will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Some people think it literally means that. A lot of people do. I've heard many Christians say it. There was one Christian that used to say, I won't mention the person because you may know this person. This one person used to say it all the time. He used to drive me crazy. Um, uh, that's my problem, but it's a misuse. We should address misuse of Scripture, by the way. That's another thing I want to mention in all this. We shouldn't let misuse of Scripture just go by. Why would we? I mean, if we let somebody walk away with, you know, a chunk of food hanging off their chin, you know, don't you tell people, hey, look, man, <laughs> you got something hanging off your face, bud. Well, you should. Or, you know, you, you know, right? You got, you got like a dead bug on your forehead, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you can't go around correcting everyone and everything, but certainly if it's something that someone does all the time, I think you can be attentive to what that might represent. A, a, you know, that the problem is the person misunderstands something. Because oftentimes I hear non-Christians say those very scriptures. Yeah. And I want to say, but that promise isn't for you. Uh-huh. Right? Head, I say that, uh-huh. but I'm not going to start a battle uh-huh. with them. I want to find another way to work into their life. Yeah. Yeah. My, <laughs> let's right. My my depending on the person, my retort would be then, what do you need God for in the first place? He's not going to be more than you can handle. In fact, why don't I worship you instead? Yes. Yeah, exactly. What do you mean by that? Well, right, exactly. I love that tactic. It's like the best one there is. You know, if you go back to our tactics, that one is always useful. I mean, that is that is the everlasting gobstopper of, of uh, Christian apologetics, isn't it? Um, so this is the same Paul. We don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Wow. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. Paul thought he was going to die and he was in complete despair. He despaired of life itself. Man. God's people have a history of experiencing this kind of depth of difficulty beyond their strength. Um, But he also goes on to say, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You know, and he goes from so he's got that Second Corinthians one eight and nine, the original passage. He goes, but that was not to make, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, not just God, but God who raises the dead. Right. So he despaired of life, but then you remember God raises from the dead. Right? So even if he did die, even if he had the sense of death, God raises from the death. So, so Paul was able to sort of, you know, wrestle in his mind where this all goes, where this despair goes, where this difficulty goes. Hard place to be, right? It certainly doesn't mean that God won't give us more than we can handle. As the author says, so the popular notion that God will never give us more than we can handle is in reality a blatant falsehood or a lie. He will give us more than we can handle. Every single day. Yes. Isn't that the reason He does it? Yeah. So that we go to Him yeah. and then rely on ourselves or saying, oh, I can handle this. Hmm. Good point. Yeah. 
He will give us more than we can handle, and this for the express purpose of bringing us to the end of ourselves so that we realize our every life, breath, and sustaining power comes only from God all the time. Jesus clearly said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And in this particular inference, then, right, we're talking about temptation. <clears throat> this particular passage, we're talking about temptation. Um, uh, Paul has been telling the Christians in this section about you know, warning them about being arrogant, uh, the things that they did. They were attending certain feasts that they, they perhaps they shouldn't have, but figured they were okay. Uh, um, they didn't worship idols, but they still wanted to be part of sort of the social life of the city. Um, and so Paul was just a little bit concerned about where some of them were at. And he also goes on to sort of remind them about some of the things that happened in the past. He uses some Old Testament illustrations. And then after using some Old Testament illustrations about how Israel constantly fell in temptation, Paul warns the Corinthians about having overconfidence in their own ability. Okay? That, that's in verse 12. Then he goes on to verse 13. Right? He said... I thought I had that turned off. Excuse me. I don't like being interrupted by my cell phone. Go. So, in other words, did you just interrupt yourself? I did. Yeah. Oh, very rude of me. Um, so, Paul's talking specifically about temptation. And this is important for us to remember. See, if we so if, if we have the wrong understanding of the verse or we use it wrongly, we won't we won't use it for the right thing, right? If I think a screwdriver is a wrench, when I need a wrench, I'm going to go to the screwdriver. You know what I mean? And I'm not going to know that there's a wrench. So. Uh, the point that Paul's getting at here is we don't have to give in to temptation because God will always supply a way out. Oh, well, we don't, really? So, so God knows a person's limits with regard to temptation. He won't allow any temptation to supersede a person's ability to resist it. He will provide the spiritual resources for us to sufficiently endure it. And I think this provides a nice counterbalance to those that sometimes are a little dismissive of personal sin and failure by quoting Romans 7. Say, well, you know, I get the, I got the old man and the new man at war me, you know, and uh, what I want to do, I don't do, and I don't accept that interpretation anyway. I don't don't want to go into what I believe, but I don't think that scripture teaches what most people use it for. But I'm not prepared to defend that as well as I'd like to. Um, so we have this, uh, we have this tendency many people do with Romans seven to almost sort of be uh, not dismissive of, but almost a little too willing to accept our sinfulness because after all Romans 7 tells us that, uh, that, that we have this natural man and, and the natural man you know uh, I'm sorry that, you know, I love the law of God with my mind but in me there's another work and, and another law of work in my members so it's no longer I who sin but sin that dwells in me and people almost use that and yet we have this verse that tells us that we never have to yield to temptation so they can't both be true. That's one of the reasons why I don't necessarily think Romans 7 teaches what we typically say it teaches. But um, And maybe someday I'll work on that verse a little bit harder. These are just thoughts that I have. Uh, but, but, but for this verse, what this verse is teaching is not God will never give you more than you can handle. It has to deal specifically with temptation and the fact that he'll never be... And so isn't temptation strong sometimes? Mm. Right? I mean, how strong can temptation be at times? Oh, it can be so powerful from and it doesn't have to be a big thing it can be um, uh, it can be a lustful look that you know ahead of time you shouldn't do but you do anyway it could be a smart comment that you want to make to somebody that you shouldn't do and you know you shouldn't do and you see the way out but you don't take the way out because you'd much rather do it and be hurtful or you know you name it 
What are some of the temptations that are just so difficult? Ice cream. Ice cream. <laughs> I don't, I don't that is not a temptation, brother. That is not a temptation. Uh, right? But, but that, that same, you know, ice cream is a good, good, <laughs> the, the desire for it, you know, but it's, hey, you know, just one lick. Right? Yeah. <laughs> When we defend ourselves against an attack, mm-hmm. we really have to be careful um, how we how we defend ourselves if, if that's what we choose to do. Because there's an occasion for us to really sin at that point in time. So, like, if someone's insulting you, or t- yeah. what do you mean? Yeah, yeah. Which, you know, that brings up talk about another misused Bible verse: "Turn the other cheek." Boy, has that thing gotten a lot of bad rap, a lot of bad mileage. I mean, you know, so according to some, you're not supposed to do anything because you're supposed to turn the other cheek. When all that's speaking to is revenge, personal revenge when insult is given. Period. It's a very simple, very simple verse that has been. I've heard people, I've heard people, so-called Christians, say that we shouldn't go to war because Jesus said turns the other cheek. One has nothing to do with the other. Okay, if somebody hits you on your right cheek, the only way you get hit on the right cheek is with a backhand, which is a common form of insult, especially in those days. Right? If you get struck on the right side of your cheek, it's because someone's giving you a backhand. And it's a personal insult. Jesus is talking about personal insult there. He's not talking about anything else. So, does that mean if somebody robs my house, I shouldn't call the police? Well, of course I should. They've committed a crime not only against me, but against society. Does it mean that if somebody... Um, it doesn't mean that you have to sue somebody, but if somebody does something to you that's uh, worthy of a lawsuit, should you not sue them because you turn the other cheek? No, it's of course, that, that's got nothing to do with it. So that's another greatly misused verse. But it does mean if somebody, but this and every politician needs to hear this, and anyone that likes politics like me needs to hear it, right? Is if if you get a slam as a Christian, for example, or you get a slam for your point of view, you don't turn around and slam the person back. You don't repay evil with evil, right? You leave room for God. I can't listen to that. Find, find it. I, I don't even know where to put it. Well, run it where did, that, where did that phone go? Honey, where's my stuff? She knows where everything is. Yeah. Uh, she knows where everything is. It's, it's absolutely amazing. I mean, I don't know. Does anyone, is anyone else's wife like that? Men? I, what a bl- she knows where everything She can see it once and know where it is. I was just walking in the house the first time with something. Wow. You know what it actually is? It's a divine power to make things materialize where they weren't before. <laughs> so anyway, so... I think we'll find as we study misused Bible verses, and there's more of them that we'll cover, we want to be just so careful to understand what Scripture is truly saying. Because if we don't, we don't have it when we need it, or we have the wrong thing when we don't need it. And uh, God has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. Okay. Oh, here's another one. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. I was recently sharing with a... Does it seem like I pick on the Pentecostals too much? Yeah. Sharing with a Pentecostal brother. My, you know, we're having a strained relationship with one of my family members, one of my offspring. He says, oh, don't worry, brother. Scripture says, train up a child in the way they should go, and they're old, they will not depart from it. And I wanted to say, oh, really? Salvation by training alone? Awesome, yeah, thank you for that. But it doesn't mean that at all. 
it doesn't mean that at all. And this, this could segue into more discussions about what I believe is a gross misuse of the rod at times. Um, I'd like to have that discussion, but I'll, I'll save that for another time. That's a real pet peeve of mine. Yes? Pastor uh, Ed Moore says, train up a child the way she, he should go, and he will not depart. Meaning, however that child is trained up, mm -hmm. that's the way he's going to go. Not necessarily that if we train up a child the way we think he should go, he'll stay in that direction, because that's not true. Yeah, there's a lot. There, there, are, there are several different sort of views. Um, what people have sort of done, I think, worked with this verse. What are your thoughts, Brother Gary? I think it has to do with occupation, probably. Um, Chuck Swindoll would agree with you. Pardon me? Chuck Swindoll would agree with you. Yeah. Um, I know we use it for when we bring up our children in the Lord. And we shouldn't. And I think I would and use it in six, uh, yeah. primarily there. Mm -hmm. uh, but... I think it ha can have, have application for that. Mm -hmm. Probably talking about the way in which uh, you the way you prepare a child for the future is by the way you bring them up in the present, and what you're going to do with them in the present will have later life uh, bearings. Mark, is it, a, is it like a broad range of the way you bring a child up, or is it like do you like teaching your child how to work? You know, uh, uh, the, the basics, things mm -hmm. of life. Uh, I really don't well, let's take a look. How about, uh, yes? I was thinking, like, I know this is kind of a general whole thing. I'm necessarily I'm literally training a child. Happy so First like, Father's Day, by the way. Oh, thank you, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, Thanks, dear. So I feel like from what I've seen a lot with, like, the misusing of the scripture, there's a truth in that scripture alone. Sure there is. But I think it's only the part of the whole picture that mm -hmm. you take, like, the one little puzzle piece mm -hmm. and say, I'm going to live that. Yeah. But then you miss this puzzle piece mm. that gives the rest of the image yeah, that you sure. missed the first one, if I'm making sense. Yeah, out of context. So, yeah, we kind of just take pieces. When the scriptures were read, like the letters, they were let read <coughs> as the yeah. letter in full. It wasn't just like, right. so God so loved the world, I right, <laughs> just live your day. Yeah. No, they read like yeah, you're right. the whole scriptures, yep. and then I think it was a whole meaning in context. Not Definitely. Not just one snippet here and there, hence the misuse. Amen. <laughs> Good, hands up. Let Maureen go. Maureen. Um, I love that verse in the sense that as a parent that's your responsibility is to train them up definitely. Know the scriptures. Yep, definitely there's no guarantee they'll follow it mm -hmm. but I will tell you they can never take it out of their brains mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's there and mm -hmm. that's what you're relying on whether they follow it or not mm -hmm. You're doing your responsibility, and I love to think it's a goal, it's a goal, it's a goal, no matter where they go and what they do. Yeah, so there's a certain sense, there's a certain sense in which we could say, there's a certain sense we could say, train up a child in the way they should go, and it will never depart from them. <laughs> right. I just want to add a little bit to what Maureen said. I think in times of trouble, a, a non-Christian who has grown up in a Christian home in a way, intellectually, maybe not in their heart and spiritually, they know the answer. Yes. They know where the answer is. They know where it can be found. They know where to go to and who to plead to in times of trouble. It's interesting. L let's see what the gentleman that wrote this particular book has to say. And he, and he does, first of all, along with what you were saying, Maureen, parenting requires patience, humility, and sacrifice, doesn't it? He said, I'm also convinced that this is one of the divinely ordained ways that God works on our sanctification especially when it comes to the idea of servanthood. You know, we are there. We always like to think of we're in a position of authority. Authority 
Mix authority with sinful humanity and what a mess you get, right? What an opportunity authority gives us to serve. Right? Authority it gives us such an opportunity to serve because we need authority. Everyone needs authority. It's, it, we need it. I mean, there's no, that's, that's beyond dispute, correct? We all need authority. There might be a few rebels in here, Todd, a few others that think we don't, but um, we need authority. Authority is a golden opportunity to serve because the God-ordained authority given you is for the purpose of glorifying Him and serving another. Okay, and this, is, this comes into the whole, not only parent-child thing, but husband-wife thing, employee-employer thing, all kinds of places that we could talk about. Todd and his wife? I'm sorry? Is that Todd and his wife? <laughs> this Second week, I'm minding my own business over here. That's right. I just want to make sure the head cold hasn't affected you. And it hasn't. You're on top of your game. That's all I'm saying. Truth be told, there's no such thing as a perfect parent. We all make mistakes, correct? Uh, but the important thing is that we create a culture of grace <coughs> in our homes, right? Where healthy communication, biblical principles, spiritual formation become staples of everyday life, right? Proverbs 22.6, you know, again, a well-known verse that parents of older children often cling to when they watch their children go through times of, of well, straying and rebelling and, and struggle. Um, as I was just sharing with that brother, that brother at work said, At first glance, it seems to indicate that if a child who was raised well falls into rebellion, it is only a matter of time before they are guaranteed to return to what is right. But this misses the nature of a proverb. Others interpret it differently, saying training up a child in the way he should go merely means to train him up according to the natural bent and tendencies, which would go along with occupations. Strong-willed or insecure, you know, work with their natural tendencies. I don't quite know about that because our natural tendencies are pretty ugly. When understood this way, it therefore would communicate that we should train them according to their own predisposed path, but this understanding does not match the overall themes of the book. Here's the most important part about it. To understand why this is not a guarantee, one has to understand the nature of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs are not promises. Proverbs are not promises. They are principles. They come... They're, uh, it's, it's, as he says, the proverb suggests that as a matter of historical observation, when this kind of training is consistently done, it usually brings positive results, especially when the child grows older and comes of age. But there is no promise. Look at, look at. Do you think that perhaps, um, do you think that perhaps Nathan did a pretty good job raising his children? Wasn't it Nathan that also had difficult children, brother? We know David had difficult children, but it said that he didn't really sort of confront Absalom the way that he had to. Good morning. But he certainly must have provided... How could his children grow up around David all the time, not having constant exposure to David's love to go up to the temple and ascend the holy hill and all the psalms he wrote? You think he didn't share those kinds of things with his children? Right? Do you think that he just completely didn't correct them in every way? So, no, David wasn't the perfect parent. Okay? Uh, And he ended up with an Absalom, but he also ended up... um, who was the other jerk that abused Absalom's sister? Amnon. Yeah, yeah. Who, who was it? Was it Adonijah? No, no, no. The one that raped... Uh, oh, that was Amnon. Yes. Yeah, he raped uh, Tamar. Tamar, yeah. David's, you know, Absalom's... It was his own half-sister. But he had to have been brought up around some instruction as well. So, you know, I think of these things, and of course we know that Eli, he completely neglected his... He should have gone a lot further because his sons were... 
you know, look what they were doing. Right? Look what they were doing with the priesthood. Look what they were doing in the front of the of the tabernacle. So, yeah, and there are others that, that have brought up children in, in what would be a, a culture and environment of grace and godliness. There's just no guarantee. But it is a principle, isn't it? It is a general principle. Um, that doesn't mean they're going to be saved, though. This isn't talking about salvation, because we're not talking about salvation by, what, by discipline alone. You know? Uh, we're not talking about salvation by training alone, right? I mean, this, but there is something special and blessed about growing up in a Christian home. Scripture says so. Without getting too much into the verses, you know, otherwise the, the children would not be sanctified, the children would not be holy, were it not for the fact that the parents were. So there's something special going on in a Christian home. All the more reason why, all the more reason why, too, there's, there's, there's going to be a real high standard that they held to accountability. But this, this, this proverb certainly doesn't suggest that somehow... Uh, so, this is so important to remember about proverbs in general. Oftentimes we quote a proverb as if it's a promise from God. And it's not. It's not like some godly promise. What is wisdom? Wisdom is the observation of doing things a certain way. Wisdom is the right application of knowledge. Wisdom is uh, so useful for us that we need it greatly, right? But we can't take proverbs as promises. It's its own genre first of all, wisdom literature. But there's certainly a principles in there that as God's people that we hold on to. Um, okay. The Old Testament scholar, um, well, well, this author says, so when godly parents create that culture at home where they exercise healthy, formative, and corrective discipline on their children, it will most likely result in healthy thinking and behaviors as they grow older. Now, there are a lot of things that happen. And what this verse seems to, I don't want to say leave out, but Maybe we could, we could think of the fact that there's life experience that the child has to experience on their own at times. And then they find out that it was right after all. Uh, yes? I was just thinking, uh, we who have raised children in our Christian homes, and then we see our children, uh, not, as they grow older, mm-hmm. not being saved, not being mm-hmm. children of God, uh, would that, that that right there kind of um, shows you that there's no guarantee, there's no promise, uh, and that it can be uh, it's, it's not going to happen. Well, there's also the whole. I always keep this in mind too. This these particular proverbs are offered within the setting of a mosaic covenant. There's something important about that. This this these sayings are brought up within a setting of a theocratic. Uh, a theocratic mosaic covenant. So there are certain things where, you know, it was a very much an if-then covenant. If you do this, you'll be blessed. If you do that. So I think that has a place in understanding what this means as well. I mean, the same, the same thing that talks about, and we could go into uh, uh, part of the ongoing training of a child is discipline and what that means and the uses and how we ought to understand as I alluded to a minute ago rod in the Old Testament uh, I'm not going to argue whether there should never be physical punishment of some kind but I, I would say in my personal opinion it's grossly overdone and grossly overused uh, the Proverbs to, to try to make a case for physical punishment maybe we'll have a class on that sometime too that's another sweet spot of mine um, but there's so but those same things that tell them to, to, to you know, 
you know, if you beat him, he will not die. I mean, you remember that same covenant that said, bring that stubborn child before the elders of the city gate and let him be stoned to death. You know what I'm saying? In the exact same covenant, you've got to think very carefully through what's going on. So, Scripture, just like anything, has to be carefully worked through. And if the church doesn't carefully use it, how can we expect the public to carefully use Scripture? Well, we can't anyway, right? The point is that this proverb encourages parents to train their children, but does not guarantee that if they do so, the children will never stray. First of all, it doesn't mean if they teach them about salvation, they're going to be saved. We can't possibly use it to mean that. Can't possibly. This insight into the form of the proverb is particularly important for parents to grasp when their adult children have not turned out well, otherwise the verse becomes a sledgehammer of guilt a purpose that it was not intended to carry. And on the other hand, we don't want it to become a reason for pride if one's child does turn out well. Very simple. Not a whole lot more that has to be said about it. Last one I want to cover today is I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I love the way this guy sets this up in this. A couple of boys on opposing basketball teams brought up in Christian homes. Right? Each one knows a little about the Bible. Each one knows Philippians 4.13 pretty well. And he goes on to say, the, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The basketball game proves to be a fierce competition. For four quarters, the boys run, jump, shoot, and rebound as hard as they can. Both fortified by the thought, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But at the end of the day, only one kid in this team will be a winner. And on the way home, they'll each stare out their car window and have two completely different thoughts. One will tell himself, you know, God is awesome. He really does give me strength. What an awesome God. What a game. We won. The other thing's quite the opposite. Where was God when I needed Him today? I guess His strength is not as strong as I thought. What a joke. Right? So if, if this verse were true, the way it's being applied there, or the way that, what's His name, had it on His boxing robe when He came out of the thing. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Yes, Tony? I, I think it's taken to mean what I want to do. Oh, sure. Yeah, and but... It's not what I want to do. It's what He wants me to do that He will give me strength to do. And it is the nature of man to take what God reveals and put it to His own purposes and effects. <coughs> yeah, Gary? If I'm not mistaken, um, there's two prominent players in the NBA and their teams play against each other. Mm-hmm. And both of them have mm-hmm. on their sneakers Philippians 4.13 and their opponents to one another. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. You know, a lot of us, I've heard people say, a lot of us like it. There's nothing wrong when people come out and say, yeah, did you see after NASCAR that guy came out and gave glory to Christ, you know? Uh, but it's always when they win. Did you ever see someone, maybe you have, have you ever seen someone that lost a sporting event or something come out and say, I just want to give thanks to my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Have you ever seen that happen? Then maybe we ought to, maybe we ought to, tame our response a little bit to those that come out and do so. I want to give glory to my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you know. Why? Because you want a game? I mean, that's great. You can thank Him for your abilities and skills and talents, but depending on who does it, it can come across very cheap. You know? It, it, I want to thank my smoking hot wife for making such a great meal for us today. It's just, you know what I mean? It, it's... It, nah. And then, and this, but there's nothing wrong with giving glory to God. You know, I just think that most people don't have a context for that. So, um, when someone in a sport, an athlete comes out and says something like that, it's great to us Christians who hear it because we love hearing the name of Jesus. But 
I think that if we're not careful, that can easily fall in line with this. Uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I think that has to do with kind of what we're saying before, like the context, like you were saying, the context before <coughs> has nothing to do with like doing something like I want to go find a tree today. Right. Or the context before has nothing to do with I'm going to make this meal that I've never made at a five-star restaurant, even though I'm in this dinky little house. Yes. Like it has nothing to do with that. It has you know whatever. I think it's probably like, you know whether I'm like lowly or whether I'm in bad health or whether I'm you know hungry or you know naked and cold. Yes. I can bear it. I can do all things. Mm-hmm. It has to do with everything else. It's more because a spiritual gift. I mm-hmm. can do all things. Not physical gifts. I can do all things. Let me try to mix the two and try to see what we can make out of it. Well, yeah, and, 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 and thanks. And the author says when we take scripture out of context and try to use the Bible how we see fit, we can easily set ourselves up for defeat. In fact, we can become so disillusioned with God that we practically shipwreck our own faith because He's not meeting our expectations. Mm. Now, we should develop certain expectations in scripture. Everywhere where you see hope in scripture, I think we could probably plug the word expectation in. You know, I really do. Because, as I've mentioned before, hope, the way Scripture uses hope really is, you know, anticipatory expectation. It's not, a, I hope it doesn't rain today. It's, it's not like it could go 50 50 either way. <laughs> I hope is in something, I hope is an expectation. But if we don't understand Scripture rightly, if we have these verses that we're talking about that get so misused, we really can cause shipwreck for ourselves and for others. Even the verse about training up a child. If that was applied the way some suggest, then we would just feel terrible. We would feel terrible. I mean, none of my three children would have a problem my saying that none of them right now really are sure about the whole Jesus thing. Although each one of them, in turn, of their own initiative, came to us professing belief. Kim and I decided ahead of time we would never even strongly suggest they get baptized. Each of them came to us in their own timing. And at least two of them, and at the time I was greatly surprised by it, you know. But out of the three of them right now, none of them would really uh, demonstrate any sort of, um, or, or they wouldn't, they wouldn't. And again, I'm not. They would have no problem saying this themselves. Is that they don't think that that's, you know, they're not sure, they're not this, they're not that. So should boy, should I have done devotions, you know, more often? Should I have done this more? often? Just back right off that, man. Just back right off that. The devil's standing behind that one. Yes? In the context of uh, Philippians 4, Paul says, I've learned in whatever state I am. Yes. There were to be content. Yes. I have learned how to be abased. Yes. And I've heard, learned how to be abound. Yes. And that, in the next verse, now he can say, That's right. I can do all things through him who strengthens That's me. That's right. It, well, you better way of understanding, I can do all things through him who enables me to endure. Yes. All yeah, you know absolutely. I, I can. It, it, it's not much. It, I can be a Christian in all circumstances. I can honor Christ in all circumstances because He gives me the strength to. Because Paul, as you just alluded to, and his brother over here, Nicky's been saying, but you know, repeating this thing about context, he says, "Rejoice in the Lord always." He's talking about whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is pure, and then he goes on to say, I "Rejoice in the Lord greatly that you have revived your concern for me. You were concerned before, but you didn't have the opportunity to minister to me." He says, not that I speak from want. I can be content. He, as Gary was saying, I, I know how to get along with humble means. I know how to live in prosperity. And, and in every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being both filled and hungry. And the secret is I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can be strong in faith. I can, I can be what God calls me to be in all circumstances. In other words, he's saying, I'm not circumstance dependent for godliness. 
Lydia. Yeah, there you go. That's good. Mm. Yeah. Sure. called to him and we're called to we're, we're gifted to we're enabled to enjoy God all the time well, he's given that to us as a as his, his free blessing and gift to us as that we can know him enjoy him fully at all times that is going to be a struggle at times of course it doesn't mean it goes away it just means sometimes uh, again it's like you know a cloud that blocks the sun for a bit of time or something so to um so the New Testament book of Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul. He was under a house arrest in Rome, uh, facing an uncertain future. Paul was not sure whether he would be executed by the Romans, right? Because they were widely known for persecuting the church at this point. But Paul desires these people to see his people grow spiritually and to serve God faithfully without any attachment to the world. And Paul can give that advice pretty good. And he wants them to be unified, experiencing the joy that's found in Christ. In fact, the words joy and rejoice are found no less than 16 times in the book's four chapters. This is from a Roman prison. Okay, this was not Paul Manafort's comfortable surroundings. Okay, this was not prison today. You've got to remember that when you talk about Roman prison. Now, house arrest was better. You, people could come and go. But they didn't feed you with Roman-empowered tax dollars. I mean, people had to come and give you stuff. They had to bring you stuff. So you survived in prison. People bought you food. They bought you the extras that you needed. So no matter what your situation is in life, learn to be content, whether well-fed or hungry, rich or poor, and so on. And our ability to be content in the midst of human struggles is due to, hit, to this one point in truth. I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. So even this, when we, when we have it spiritual, as it should be, it's still not from an inner strength that we have, unless it's that inner strength that's Christ in us. Paul is talking about contentment. It's as if he's saying, I've learned to be content in any and every situation because God is the one who's given me the spiritual strength to be content. God had given him the power not to worry. All these things come from God. So we know where we have to go to sort of get them. What a joy it would be to come to the place in our lives where we knew that we could trust in Christ to provide and rest in His strength for any and all things. To have that kind of spiritual strength would be amazing. Monumental. And according to what Paul says, absolutely possible. Right? He says in other places, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. It's okay to be weak. Not to be a weakling, in a sense. right? Not to just sort of like always be... Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. Right? So we go back to them about temptation a minute ago. Uh, we were talking about, He'll give us a way out. Well, I'm not depending upon my own strength to get out of a, a temptation that I'm in. I got no willpower to do that. I got won't power. Right? That's our problem is we have won't power. He says, This why for Christ's sake I delight in weakness and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I'm weak, I'm strong. What a contrary message to the world. God provides the strength and power to be content when life is not ideal. Let's be honest. When is life ideal? 
you know, on those. Is life ever really ideal in in this sort of understanding? Problems are like mosquitoes, man. They're just always around. It's tempting to think when I get a raise, I'll be settled and secure. Or as soon as I get married, I'll find contentment at last. But these sorts of things are smoke screens for the believer in Christ. All in all, Paul traveled pretty light. He had a few clothes, maybe a few writing instruments, a few scrolls of the Bible, some paper or papyrus to write on. Not much more than yet that, and yet Paul was content. <coughs> what a lesson, right, for you and me. So, a uh, couple more verses that we have left. I'll, there's a few that, maybe one or two more I might mix in. Um, because I think this is a worthy study on misused Bible verses. And maybe some come up in your mind. Maybe as we approach, as we come towards the end, maybe another two weeks, there might be verses that you just don't understand at all. And you, or, or things you think you've heard wrong. Yes, Randy. As we've been doing this the last few weeks, I've been thinking how I picked up all this stuff. You get saved, someone gives you a track, you come to Christ, you open the eyes of your heart to the gospel, you come to church, mm-hmm. immature believer, and you pick it up from mature believers. Yeah. You know? yep. And you just take it as true. Exactly. Exactly. That's what that was means. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then before you know it, you're using it. Mm-hmm. So you got to be a good Berean. It's so important to, to know what Scripture says and not, you know... That's why Paul didn't get all hung up on what other people taught and said. And they Not that they weren't speaking truth. I'm sure Apollos was speaking truth and Cephas was speaking truth and this one and that one. Right? People were becoming followers of different teachers all the time. Good lessons in that, too. But yeah, we got we get something we're passing on to others. People have... More, more is, they say more is caught than taught. I, don't, you know, I suppose there's some truth to that people pick up on those patterns of behavior and, and words and apply them in a wrong way but probably secretly spend a lot of time wondering why it never seems to be so how many times this is one of the great dangers of misusing Bible verses is the quiet discontent that a Christian can live with hearing this verse spoken about this way all the time but never experiencing it maybe it's because that's not what people say it is so yeah we have a huge responsibility you know we are not, as so many are, as Paul said, peddling the Word of God. Now, hopefully the Word of God is peddling us, right? Moving us along. Alright, so let's have a little closing prayer. Nikki, would you close us in prayer? Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your Word. For it is true and it is pure and it is right in every way. And Lord, may we with understanding go forth and learn it rightly, not from our own understanding, but from yours as from above. Lord, may we today worship you in spirit and in truth, in love always, as you guide us and direct us and command us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.